Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Stephanie Seneff. Stephanie is a senior research scientist at MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. She's earned degrees in biophysics, electrical engineering, and holds a PhD in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT. For over three decades, her research interests have been the intersection of biology and computation. Recently, Stephanie has turned her attention to nutrition, health, and wellness. Stephanie, thanks so much for being part of the show. I'm delighted to be here. Well, Stephanie, it's great to have you on. Can you give me a little bit of a background and how you went from being an electrical engineer, computer science nerd, to mm-hmm. being to going into health and wellness? Yes. Well, of course, I, yeah, I was motivated by what I was seeing happening in this country, and I'm very concerned about, for example, the autism epidemic and all the other issues that um, we're having, particularly our children. I mean, our children are really getting sick with um, stomach issues and uh, asthma and allergies and ADHD, depression, diabetes, obesity. I mean, all these things that are happening to our children clearly have something to do with the environment they're living in. And so I became quite concerned, particularly about autism, which has been going up. The rate of autism has been going up alarmingly, especially in the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really wanted to understand what was causing that problem. Okay. To focus on autism and then to learn whatever else I could about the rest of it in the context of autism. Do you, do you feel that your background in computer science and engineering has helped you um, understand uh, nutrition in any with a unique perspective in any way? I think so. First of all, I think that kind of thinking, a computer scientist is trained to think logically and to understand patterns and to see how things lead to other things and and connectivity and all of that, hierarchies, you know, that's all happening in biology. And a computer scientist is always asking why, you know, and trying to understand. And so I think I I don't necessarily treat the literature the same way someone else, a biologist might treat the literature because of my computer science additional training. Also, I use the computer science techniques to process the literature. So I can take a pile of papers and throw them into a um, machinery that computes word frequencies and word correlations and builds uh, hierarchies of word um, classes. And then you can use those to give you hints about what to look for and go find paragraphs that mention different things together to infer the story. So you're basically using sleuthing techniques based on very simple computer science techniques to help a biologist, and I'm playing both roles to understand how everything connects together. Okay. Well, let's get into some of some of what you've been learning about recently in regards to cholesterol. Um, is and At the beginning, you mentioned that you were specifically interested in autism, but I've also heard you talk a lot about cholesterol. Let's give our listeners a little bit of a background of how important that nutrient is, and um, yeah, just take it from there. Yeah, and in fact, that's a parallel path that I was on since the last six years. Six years ago, my husband was diagnosed with heart disease and a stent was inserted. He was put on a high-dose statin and immediately started getting side effects. So I started getting very, very interested 
in learning about what's causing heart disease and what are statins doing and why do they have these side effects. I did some computer science studies of statins, found a whole bunch more side effects, even much worse than the ones my husband was experiencing. I managed to persuade him to get off the statin drug. He's been statin-free now for five out of the past six years. He's doing very well. And I think the statin drugs are another big issue one could talk about, but that's probably not our topic today. Anyway, that caused me to look into cholesterol and to find this link to sulfate, which is quite surprising. And then I also was able to link up the autism with the heart disease and find out that they were actually the same problem. So it's amazing how it's all come together with a single deficiency that I think is rampant in our society. And this deficiency, I believe, is in cholesterol sulfate. So it's a deficiency in both cholesterol and sulfate, which is due to uh, insufficient production of cholesterol sulfate. Okay. So you mentioned there that heart disease and autism could possibly be linked. How, how, how do you get those to be linked? Yeah, it doesn't understand. surprising, doesn't it? Well, of course, the brain contains 25% of the body's cholesterol with only 2% of the body's mass. So clearly the brain is over uh, overabundantly supplied with cholesterol. So it's extremely important in the brain. And if the brain doesn't get enough cholesterol, the body uh, the, it won't work right. And I think cholesterol deficiency in the brain is a driver behind autism in the fetus. So while the child is, is developing during pregnancy, the mother is not supplying enough cholesterol sulfate to the fetus. Um, it actually turns out that cholesterol sulfate piles up in an ordinary pregnancy in the, in the villi that are at the edges of the, the placenta has these little villi. Um, that stick out, that that provide nutrients between the, the, the placenta and the child. And those things become loaded up with cholesterol sulfate during the third trimester of, of the pregnancy at a time when the brain is really developing. So that's essential. And if there isn't enough of that cholesterol sulfate, the brain goes into a different development mode. There's something called epigenetics, which influences how the brain develops. And it will um, turn off a bunch of enzymes and turn on a bunch of enzymes and create a whole new program that's based on an assumption, I think, of sulfate deficiency. And there's been a lot of evidence for sulfate deficiency in autism. For example, rats engineered to have def a defect in producing heparin sulfate, it's a very important molecule in the brain, um, are shown to reproduce all the rat-based uh, symptoms of autism. They, they cre it creates a, a rat-based autism model just by that one feature of not being able to sulfate the heparin in the brain. And, and Alzheimer's is also, I think, connected to sulfate deficiencies. Alzheimer's brains post-mortem have been found to have a severe deficiency in the only sulfated lipid, which is called sulfatide. So you see all these different patterns of sulfate deficiency everywhere you look. Colitis and Crohn's disease, which are, which are digestive problems, mm -hmm. are also connected to sulfate deficiency in the gut. So, so it you, goes back on. You, you mentioned yeah. sul sulfate and cholesterol there, kind of, it seemed a little bit interchangeably. Is, are they the same thing? How are they linked? They're linked because they hold hands and carry each other through the blood. So this is really important. Cholesterol, it's not water-soluble, so it can't just go floating down the bloodstream. You know, it has to be packaged up inside these particles called LDL and HDL. And anybody who's worried about their cholesterol knows that they want their LDL to be low and their HDL to be high, you know, as these as these particles that transport cholesterol and fats to all the tissues. Um if you have, if you add sulfate to the cholesterol molecule, then it can, becomes water soluble. It becomes both water soluble and fat soluble, which is really a handy feature. So the cholesterol part is fat soluble, and the water and the sulfate part is water soluble. But they can they can go together in the blood very happily. Sulfate also has a problem with transport. It's a totally different problem, which is that it causes the blood to turn into jello. I like to call it uh, liquid ice. You know, there's water actually has really really interesting properties, and there's a sort of there's a book that just came out by, by a professor named Gerald Pollock, a really fascinating book. I've read both of his books. He's done some really fascinating studies on water 
And he's shown that molecules like sulfate, and there's a variety of different, there's a set of different molecules that have this property of uh, causing water to turn into something um, that has sort of the structure of ice, but is liquid. Okay. And so this creates a kind of a jello, which is really super for the lining of the blood. It actually builds kind of a barrier so that the things that are being transported in the blood don't get to the wrong places. It kind of builds a nice pipe around the blood uh, vessel. And um, so the sulfate is really, really important for maintaining the health of the vessel that's carrying all the nutrients in the blood itself. So, but the sulfate then, because it has this property, if it's free floating in the blood, it'll gel the blood and cause a no-flow situation. It could block the blood vessel by turning the blood into, into jello, you know? Hmm. It could block the flow. So you have to be very careful with sulfate transport. And that's why molecules like cholesterol, there's many different sterols, not just cholesterol, but vitamin D and DHEA and estrone, estrogen can be, can be sulfated. So all these molecules that are sterols, are in fact transported in the blood with a sulfate molecule attached to them and they all of them are taking advantage of the sulfate for their own transport and the sulfate is taking advantage of them so the two of them together partner up to make a really beautiful method to transport both of them mm. is really, really important so that's how sulfate gets around i think is all these molecules that can carry it all these carrier molecules for sulfate and also, every time they're sulfated, they're inactive. They don't do the thing they usually do. So vitamin D uh, ordinarily allows calcium movement you know, between, into the cell and things like that. When it's sulfated, it's inactive. Okay. So that's also handy because you don't want it to be active when it's not where it's supposed to be working, you know? Okay. So, now, it's so you mentioned that how important those nutrients are and how the interaction between the two is really important. What sorts of, how do we, what sorts of foods would we get the cholesterol that you're talking about and the sulfur? Um, how do we get that into our bloodstream to prevent prevent these diseases? Yes. Well, the, of course, the foods that are high in cholesterol are all the ones they're telling us to avoid. I think they're very healthy. And in fact, my husband, who has heart disease, eats a lot of the foods that contain cholesterol. He eats a lot of eggs and seafood, you know, uh, shrimp, oysters. Oysters are incredibly healthy. They have um, all kinds of micronutrients, which are also important for being able to make the cholesterol sulfate. And um, as well as having the cholesterol and sulfate and sulfur containing amino acids, which are very, um, which are essential, methionine and homocysteine, cysteine, methionine, these things are, and taurine, taurine is, contains a very, is a very interesting molecule. It's the only sulfonated amino acid and it's only found in animal products. If you eat a vegetarian diet, you will not get any taurine in your diet. Taurine is, is held in reserve in high amounts. The highest concentration of taurine is in the heart. And it's also found in the liver and in the brain in large amounts. And um, researchers actually don't understand what it's for. But I've written a paper, I've published a paper with co-authors that explains how um, processes that go on in encephalitis, which is an inflamed brain situation, uh, can lead to extracting sulfate from taurine. So you need to have all of that energy, like the fever, and you need these seizures and all those things to activate the reaction because the taurine is pretty much inert. But with the uh, influence of uh, all the and the, the various things that are released to try to fight an infection, all these things actually uh, allow taurine to be converted into sulfate. So again, this is like another method to get sulfate when you're desperate. You don't want to have encephalitis, mm -hmm. but you can recover sulfate from taurine if you do, and that taurine is waiting in reserve for that possibility. So it's good to keep your taurine supplies buffered up as a uh, backup system if your sulfate should become too low. Mm. You mentioned that your husband has heart disease and he's eating um, a high cholesterol, high fat diet. 
yes. some people who who might be new to the show um, might be thinking, well, isn't he just going to clog his arteries more? What, why would you be feeding him more cholesterol if he has heart disease? Right. So um, you have to do that in conjunction with uh, an important piece of the puzzle, which is to get plenty of sunlight exposure to the skin. Mm. So so key part of my theory is that the skin produces, well, the skin, in fact, is known to produce cholesterol sulfate in large amounts. It's believed to be the major source of cholesterol sulfate to the body. By the way, cholesterol sulfate is a very poorly understood and poor, poorly researched molecule. So people need to be looking at it because when you start looking at it, you realize how important it is. Um, the skin produces vitamin D sulfate upon sun exposure. And we've argued in another paper that's been published that it produces cholesterol sulfate as well in, as a reaction to sun exposure, that it needs the sunlight to catalyze the production of the sulfate molecule. So you can produce sulfate in the skin if you have sulfur sources that are not sulfate, you know, there's, that are, are precursors to sulfate. So sulfate is SO4. It has four oxygen molecules, which is actually really neat because it's transporting oxygen as well as sulfur in that sulfate molecule. And I think that oxygen can be released and used in metabolism at a later stage. So it's a way of storing oxygen as well. And it also stores energy. So you're, it's basically using the sunlight as a, as a sort of solar. I think of the skin as a solar panel, mm. getting energy from the sun and capturing that energy in the sulfate molecule. So it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. I had to read a whole bunch of uh, articles about uh, various sulfur um, metabolizing bacteria. And it turns out that if you look at the enzymes that they use for that, they resemble eno. The, the, the molecule that we've identified that produces the sulfate. So we've been having a lot of fun with the chemistry uh, to figure all this out. But it, this is a piece of the puzzle that would uh, is not. Um, you won't find other articles in literature about it. So it's quite a revolutionary idea. But mm. I believe it's right. You know, it, it um, it's a it, the skin. It definitely makes cholesterol sulfate. There's no contest about that. But people don't worry a lot about what's happening with sulfate in the body. They should be. Okay. So it sounds like you're kind of taking this natural approach where, you know, a natural diet, at least from a paleolithic perspective, is to eat more of animal products, maybe slightly higher fat, and also you're getting a lot of sun exposure. And so, so you're fat. putting all these these um, connections together and you're yes. seeing and you're understanding the molecular level of how it actually works. Now, what yes. about skin cancer from sun exposure? Do we have to be worried about that? So I, it's interesting to find that skin cancer... Melanoma has been going up by 3% per year since the 1970s when they first started telling us we needed to use sunscreen. So they keep on telling us, oh, my God, so much skin cancer, use more sunscreen. And so we keep on obliging and we use more and more sunscreen every year. And in step with that increased sunscreen usage goes increased melanoma. Mm. So people don't realize this, but I believe the sunscreen is actually causing the skin cancer. Okay. You know, um, what, do you, what do you recommend for people who, uh, who can't get outside in the sun a lot? Can they just take vitamin? D? I don't recommend that. Um, and I'm not positive I'm right about that, but I do not take vitamin D. I have never taken it. I believe that messes things up because vitamin D, I think, is almost a marker for cholesterol sulfate if you get it from the sun. If you get it through some vitamin D supplement, then your system's confused because it sees there's all this vitamin D in the blood and therefore somehow thinks it doesn't have to make cholesterol sulfate because it expects those two to go together, you know? Mm. So it could actually interfere with cholesterol sulfate synthesis. Now, I'm out on a limb on this. I don't have articles to back that up. It's just sort of a hunch that I have. Mm -hmm. um, but I have never taken uh, vitamin D supplements, and I don't recommend them. Okay. I do recommend eating foods that contain vitamin D because, again, I'm really into natural, and I don't like supplements. I don't like, you know, prescription drugs for sure. Mm -hmm. And supplements, I think, should be used in moderation. Of course, unfortunately, our food system, 
system is so messed up that it's extremely difficult to get high quality nutrients from the food that's available in this country. You know, many of our foods are severely uh, impoverished in nutrients, in micronutrients in particular. So people get into severe deficiencies. And once you have a deficiency in one of these critical vitamins, then your body can't do something that's really important. And a whole cascade of things happen that are really bad, you know? Interesting. You can't worry about getting enough nutrients, but you have to do that through the food. And that means eating organic foods and eating a diet that's high in, I believe, in seafood, meat, eggs, a dairy, and especially fermented dairy, you know, yogurt and, and sour cream and things like that. Mm-hmm. High fat fermented dairy. I do not eat any low-fat dairy ever. And so, the fat, fat in dairy is very healthy. What do you say to the Paleolithic people who say that um, animals, wild animals were never meant to be milked and we shouldn't be eating dairy? Do you think that um, dairy is a healthy food for us to be eating? And, and why, why is that? Well, I have to be careful there because, of course, the cows are treated very badly in this country. They're, they're kept indoors. They don't get any sunlight exposure. They're, they're given this horrible food that's loaded up with, uh, you know, all the GMO corn and soy that's probably loaded up with toxins like glyphosate, which is in Roundup. So they're getting exposed to toxic chemicals, which are going directly into their liver. And the cows are sick. I mean, I've been reading about a lot of problems that the animals are having, especially lately, because the GMO foods have gone way up in production in the last 10 years. You know, you know, the GMO, this is the genetically engineered foods to be um, Roundup Ready, they call it. Roundup Ready, meaning that that this food is, the plant is resistant to the toxin in Roundup, which kills all plants, basically. Roundup is an herbicide that's, you know, you buy that at the store to kill the weeds in your yard. It's considered non-toxic, and I do not believe at all that it's non-toxic. I think it's a major contributor to, for example, autism. And, uh, in our, in, and I've done a paper on that as well. And in our studies, we showed that uh, there's a, you can connect the dots between what Roundup does, what the glyphosate, which is this active ingredient in Roundup, does to plants and to microbes. And you can translate that into directly into the features that are associated with autism defects that these kids have. Mm. They have a lot of different interesting markers, and they hook up very, very nicely. So I think that the, the Roundup is, first of all, the cows are being exposed to it in large amounts because they're eating a lot of this GMO corn and soy. We get less in our food, and we actually don't know how much we get in our food because it's hardly being monitored at all. But I'm sure we're getting some, and if we eat a lot of those processed foods, we're going to get more. Okay. So do you do raw milk then? or how? You have to do grass-fed you know, beef. You have to get really high-quality milk derived okay. from cows that have been treated well. So that gets expensive. you know. Does it have to be raw, or can you still buy pasteurized grass-fed? I know I saw some I mean, yeah. uh, some grass-fed milk at the store, but it was pasteurized. And I know. Is it's that important? I don't know. I mean, I think raw milk must be fabulous. I just can't imagine that it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's frustrating that it's so regulated. They're so afraid of these bacterial infections and whatnot. You know, they're really... I mean, the whole way we do food is really strange. I think it's quite broken where you have this concept of sort of killing everything in sight except for exactly the, the food that you're trying to produce to put on the table. You know, and this is what you do with a Roundup. You sort of, you have this amazing corn crop that's got nothing growing, not even, you know, worms or microbes because you've killed everything except for the corn crop. It's just a very dense field of nothing but corn. Very, very efficient, you know, in terms of the amount of acreage, how much, how many, much food you get per acreage, but you're destroying the soil and it's not sustainable. And, and, you know, it's just really messing up everything. So I think we're going to be headed for quite a catastrophe looking forward in our food chain 
uh, if we continue along the path that we're on right now, I'm very, very worried lately about the, the toxic chemicals that are going to show up in larger amounts in our food. Um, and this is particularly the grain. So when you avoid sugar and you avoid you know, flour and all those sort of carbohydrates, you're actually avoiding those foods that are the GMO foods that are more likely to be contaminated with these toxins. So I think that could be part of what makes it beneficial not to eat those things. Okay. And, and the other problem is that without the sulfate, and we talked about that in one of our papers, uh, it, the sulfate, we believe, is needed uh, to metabolize glucose. And so uh, when you don't have enough sulfate, then you can end up with glucose um, in insulin resistance and diabetes. And then sugar as a food becomes really dangerous because you, and you're eating these foods that are so highly digested. You know, they've been processed so highly that they're really easy to digest. Mm -hmm. So the sugar goes straight into your blood. And your body doesn't have mechanisms to be able to take it out quickly. So when the sugar is hanging around in the blood, it causes a ton of problems. It really damages proteins and, and fats. It's, it's really a mess. So you, you can't... Um you can't eat a lot of sugar and carbohydrates if you have sulfate deficiency, which probably everybody has because all of the things practices we're doing are conspiring towards sulfate deficiency. Mm. So you, mentioned, you mentioned carbs and, and processed foods there. I know you're associated with the Weston A. Price Foundation, and yes. I think they allow certain grains to be eaten. What's your take on that? Well, again, you have to be very, very careful. For example, wheat these days is, is treated right before the harvest with Roundup, with glyphosate, Mm. Uh, to desiccate it. I don't know if you've heard of this practice of desiccation. No. Uh, it's, uh, it's a growing practice. They're doing that with sugarcane now as well. I'm horrified by this. They, they used to burn sugarcane. They want to sort of, again, it's this weird modern method of farming where you sort of, instead of using uh, the materials that are left over from last year's crop as a source of nutrients to fold back into the soil, you simply want to take it away and start over next time and throw in some artificial fertilizers. You know, you do everything very artificially and instead of wanting to preserve and keep um, decaying material, you want to kind of minimize the quantity of it because you want to just remove it. And that's a ridiculous way to go. But by burning the crop with glyphosate, you're basically poisoning the wheat with glyphosate right before the harvest. So you'll shut down further growth and minimize the amount of debris that's left over that you have to clear away. And also, of course, that glyphosate is ready to kill any weeds that might try to grow in the meantime. So the next year's crop will be uh, planted in a relatively weed-free situation. But meanwhile, that glyphosate is in there. You know, it's in the harvest, I would think. Mm -hmm. It's scary. Yeah. You know, uh, another topic I'd like to touch on with you is this um, idea of brain disease, um, autism and Alzheimer's. And how are, are, are those related at all? And what kind of things do we need to watch out for to if we want to prevent those diseases and really, you know, have our brain working at maximum capacity? Right. Of course, it's the same story again as for the heart. Uh, get lots of sun exposure to the skin and eat lots of foods that are rich in cholesterol and sulfur. And that goes back to basically uh, meats, eggs, um, seafood. Mm -hmm. So lots and lots of um, those things, as well as, I should say, fresh green vegetables and onions and garlics. Uh, onion and garlic are really good sources of sulfur. And I eat a lot of those. And then all the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, um, cabbage, and Brussels sprouts, those are all really good for the sulfur. Okay. So I think eating foods that contain sulfur is really important because the whole way that we do agriculture today sucks the sulfur out, sucks it out of the soil, sucks it out of the plant. So even the plants that are supposed to have some sulfur don't, you know, it's really mm -hmm. depleted in our food supply. 
Um, I even, I mean, a lot of people have told me they take a sulfur supplement called MSM, methylsulfonylmethane. I don't personally take it because I don't take supplements. One thing I do do, I mean, that people have said they've had good results with that uh, to help them beef up their sulfur supplies. Because the foods are so deficient, it may be hard to get enough, even if you're eating the foods that are the very best sources, you know, of sulfur. So um, I like to use Epsom, Epsom salts. Epsom salts are magnesium sulfate. Okay. And that's basically like if you go to a sulfur hot springs, which I also do if I'm in a place where they have them. I think those are really great. And you allow the sulfate to um, penetrate the skin. So you're getting a direct um, delivery of sulfate through the skin instead of having to go through the digestive system where it's problematic to get it absorbed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, there's, I'm, I noticed on one of the PowerPoints you had up on your website that there might be some sort of connection between vaccines and the the aluminum and autism. I know that's very controversial, but do you have it? Can you tell us anything about that? I have a what lot. I have strong opinion about that. Um, yes, I've been. I've written papers on that, and I'm working on one right now with several co-authors uh, on aluminum. I think aluminum is incredibly toxic. Aluminum, by the way, is also in sunscreen. Okay, it's used as an emulsifier for the high-end sunscreens that have really good sunblock. And Isn't I think it also in deodorant. It is. It's in under. Uh, yes, it's in antiperspirants and um, it's in antacids. Uh, you know, we're getting a lot of exposure. And it's in vaccines, which is really scary because the vaccines are injected directly. If they go past all the barriers, ordinarily, if you have a healthy gut and you eat aluminum, almost none of it gets in because your gut's very good at keeping it out. But if you have a leaky gut, which you would have if in the context of, of things like Roundup in your diet, then the aluminum is more is easily more easily gets in. And when you get a vaccine, all the aluminum gets in to your body because it's injected directly, you know, past mm. all the barriers. And aluminum is incredibly toxic. And we have studied it um, in detail, uh, all the different things that it does. And one of the things it does is disrupt sulfate synthesis. It's mm. very close to us that it would do that. Mm. Um, so it all comes back to that sulfate. Yeah. So when you like. use sunscreen that contains aluminum, you mess up your ability to produce sulfate. The sulfate production it protects you from the UV rays of the sun. Now, melanin protects you from the UV rays of the sun. Melanin is actually, um, the precursor of melanin is a amino acid that is disrupted by glyphosate. So the whole, I mean, all the stuff works synergistically. Glyphosate is Roundup. The Roundup uh, pre- prevents the production of an amino acid, which you need to make melanin, and melanin protects you from UV rays. Melanin is what makes you get tanned. So if you cannot, if your skin doesn't tan, and there are people have told me, you know, I go out in the sun, I never get a tan, mm-hmm. then I suspect you're suffering from a deficiency in the precursors to melanin, mm. and so your melanin system is not working, and therefore you're much more sensitive to UV exposure. So again, you have to have everything healthy in order to be able to work with the sun, but if any you need a bunch of other things too, like cobalamin and zinc, which are also depleted. So there's a lot of stuff that needs to be in place, which in the old days, in the Paleolithic times, those things were in place and our bodies didn't have to worry about whether they were going to get enough of them. But the way we've butchered our whole food processing system, these things are now incredibly deficient. It's amazing to me that in a time of such food wealth, in some sense, we have so much overabundance of food, but the food sources that we have are incredibly um, deficient in nutrients, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. causing us then not to be able to work properly with something like the sun to do what would otherwise be a really vital and important health bringing um, experience to get the sun exposure. But it could turn toxic because you don't have 
all the necessary ingredients to, to carry out the process, you know? Okay. You know, that, that idea that you just brought up about disease, um, I've heard you talk about before that disease might not necessarily be a bad thing. It might be preventing you from getting something worse. Can you yes. talk a little? That's a really interesting idea. Can you really explain that a, li- a little bit and, and what your perspective is? Yes, I'm really enjoying this. When I, I, I look now at all diseases, all, you know, like illnesses that you get from infection, like pneumonia and um just getting a cold or getting even the measles or the mumps or the chicken pox. I mean, all of these childhood diseases that kids get, my suspicion is that that disease process uh, does two things good for you. One is to renew sulfate. And that's where I always, I, I look at how they might be able to do that. In various ones, you can sort of find the evidence evidence for that. But the other one is to sort of help you get rid of toxic chemicals that have accumulated in your, um, in your body. So when children are not allowed to get these diseases because of the vaccines, then this natural process isn't allowed to happen. And you always find that, you know, some kids get, I mean, like when I got the measles, I, I know, in my generation, we didn't have vaccines to protect us from the measles. And when I got the measles, I had a really mild case. It was actually really fun. I got to stay home for, t- for two weeks because that was the rule. But I was mm. never sick. I just had a few spots, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was a child who spent a lot of time outdoors. So I think I had plenty of already was fine. I was healthy. So I didn't need the measles to fix any problems. So depending upon how much how healthy that child is will, will dictate how sick they get with the measles. So if you get really sick with the measles, then you really needed the measles to solve those problems that you had. And mm-hmm. having survived that illness, you're now much stronger than you would otherwise have been. It's mm. really interesting, for example, I can give you a specific example that I found. Chlamydia pneumoniae is a bug. As you imagine, I might imagine it causes pneumonia. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a microbe that causes pneumonia, pneumonia, chlamydia. I'll call it C. pneumoniae. And okay. it also shows up in cardiovascular plaque, and it also shows up in Alzheimer's plaque. Okay. And it looks like the Alzheimer's plaque is actually providing a very nurturing environment to let this organism grow. Like it provides iron, which is an essential nutrient for this organism. This organism produces a form of heparin sulfate, which is this, I mentioned the heparin sulfate deficiency causing autism in the, in the rats. C. pneumoniae produces heparin sulfate using a unique set of enzymes not found in any other species. So I suspect that it's able to produce uh, heparin sulfate uh, using strategies that don't depend on certain micronutrients that are missing. You know, so it's another way to get the heparin sulfate by letting the bug come in and grow it for you. And wow. I think the brain is so desperate for the heparin sulfate that it's willing to allow this infection to rage in the brain in order to provide it with the heparin sulfate. So that's a, a really interesting concept, I think. If you start to think of all disease and you ask why. You say, what would be beneficial? I mean, I feel like the pathogens and the beneficial bacteria and us and, and, and the, and the uh, fun, fungi as well, we're all in a symbiotic relationship and we're all in the game together. You know, your body is basically a home for all these microbes. They outnumber us 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. So we could think of ourselves as sort of a village of microbes, you know, and we're all in it together. They want us to live because if we die, they've got a huge problem. So they're all trying to help us out in whatever way they can, you know? Yeah. So someone might be uh, listening to this and thinking, well, okay, you gave a few examples, but what about something like cancer? Certainly that couldn't be good for someone. Is is that even cancer? Could that be? Absolutely. How so? Cancer is very interesting. And again, I'm studying it from this angle. And, um, and cancer, first of all, I think starts to develop when the sulfate is defici- deficient in the environment that the cell is in. It causes it to break away and sort of become an independent 
independent entity, almost like a new amoeba or something. You know, a cancer cell, it doesn't, it no longer functions in its normal function, wherever it might be. And they start multiplying, of course, you know. And what they do is they turn, they, they go to an anaerobic form of metabolism. Um, despite the fact that oxygen is there, they don't use it. And instead, they take in gobs and gobs of glucose and they convert it to lactate. That's basically their job. They massively take, can't, all cancer cells are like that. They take in huge amounts of glucose and convert it to lactate. This is a really good service that it's doing for the body because the body is overloaded with glucose. It's causing all kinds of damage. Glucose is sugar, right? Mm -hmm. And lactate is a super, super molecule that actually has the, some of the properties of sulfate. It's got a carbonate instead of a sulfate, but it has similar properties to the sulfate. And it's a fuel. And it's a really good fuel source. The brain, the heart actually loves lactate as a fuel. It'll gra it'll grab it if it's available. And so does the brain. So the so the cancer cells are taking a really nasty molecule, which is the sugar, that's causing a lot of trouble, getting rid of it in the blood, and producing lactate, which is a really good molecule that can help everybody out. And at the same time, uh, for example, breast cancer, uh, breast cancer produces something called estrone sulfate. And in fact, people who have breast cancer take drugs often that suppress estrogen synthesis. The cancer cell wants, you know, estrogen drives the cancer cell and it'll grab the estrogen and convert it into estrone sulfate. So it's basically using, estrone is very much like cholesterol. It's, it's also a sterile. And so it can replace cholesterol sulfate as a sulfate transporter. So the, so the breast cancer is actually producing uh, a carrier molecule that can help out with the sulfate transport, which is a huge problem that's causing the blood meltdown. So and cancer is associated with all kinds of problems with you know, deep vein thrombosis. When you, get, uh, when you ha have a surgery to remove a cancer, you have a much higher risk of deep vein thrombosis than you would have after other surgeries. And I think that's because the cancer is protecting you from deep vein thrombosis through these things like estrone sulfate. And for example, prostate cancer, a marker for prostate cancer is cholesterol sulfate. Prostate cancer produces cholesterol sulfate itself. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So even the cancers, I think, are they're sort of a last ditch desperate effort to try to rescue you from a blood meltdown. I think all the problems that are critical are the blood because if the blood can't flow, you're going to be dead. Everybody's going to be dead. You know, mm -hmm. all the microbes, they're not going to be able, everybody depends on the blood to deliver the nutrients and take away the waste. And the blood is tricky. You really have to work hard to keep the blood healthy. And sulfate is a huge part of that problem, of that answer to keep the blood healthy. Okay. So someone that's listening to this might be thinking, you know, Stephanie, this is all really interesting, but you're not a doctor. You're not a nutritionist. What do you say to people who say that, you know, you don't have the MD after your name, so you shouldn't right. be giving out advice? How do, how do you combat that? that? Yeah, I don't want to be thought of as someone who's actually doing prescribing, right? Okay. So I'm just saying these are my recommendations. These are my own experiences. I'm 65 years old. I don't take any medicines. I don't take any, you know, pharmaceutical drugs uh, or even over-the-counter medicines. I don't take any nutrient supplements. But I have, I practice what I preach in terms of diet. I eat completely organic, you know, and, and lots of these uh, sort of paleolithic, I think, right? What, what? Yeah. Pretty much mm -hmm. diet. Uh, I'm very healthy. I don't have any arthritis or any headaches. I mean, I just I, my stomach. I don't have any stomach problems. You know, I haven't had any issues with my health. I never see a doctor. I'm terrified to see doctors actually because they're so <laughs> their their advice is so misguided I think so I'm doing well so far I mean you never know what's coming around the corner but uh, uh, it's working for me it's anecdotal yeah uh, yeah but, but I don't have MD but I have I do have the biology degree I actually have some graduate training in biology as well way back when uh, and I have a tremendous interest in biology I've always maintained that interest throughout my life and um, and lately, I've just been devouring. You cannot believe the number of papers that I read pretty much every day. Research papers in in biochemistry and biophysics journals. You know, I'm so fascinated, as you can tell, by all this stuff and working it all out. 
it's pretty amazing. I, I think we're, I got a group of people working with me and we're having a really good time with the research. I'm extremely depressed about the situation with the U.S. Uh, health. We're basically getting uh, extremely cheap food. The U.S. benefits from extremely cheap food. We, we spend much less money on food than our peer nations. But we're paying for that with two and a half times the cost of, of medical expenses. So our medical bills are driving us you know, into uh, bankruptcy. And it'll get much worse before it gets better because we, there's, there's continued movement along this path of, of growing food in this incredibly broken way that's going to cause you know, severe, even more nutritional deficiencies and even more exposure to a, a slew of different, a slew of different uh, toxic chemicals, herbicides, you know, the, pesticides, the insecticides, the fungicides, we're adding more and more because we're getting you know, pushback by these weeds that are becoming resistant. So we keep on having to raise the amount of pesticide that we use on mm-hmm. these crops that are then engineered to be to be resistant so that we can we don't have to worry about getting it on the food crop getting it into the food system but we do have to worry about getting it into our bodies and we're not worried enough about that and we should be because i think it's going to really keep us sick mm-hmm. well stephanie i for one really appreciate people like you who have uh you know come from a varied background and maybe that you don't have the medical degree but i think that allows you to bring a different perspective and think outside the box a little bit you know, I think that medicine gets uh, brainwashed by pharmaceutical industries, so it's hard for them to think in a normal way, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I, I think our listeners would be really interested in hearing about what you eat on a daily basis, you and your husband. Kind of run us through some of the things that you find are the most nourishing foods and, and um, what, what you would have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, say, if, if that's how you do it. I mean, how many meals a day do you do, yeah. and do you get uh, exercise as well, or yes, how does that I work? Do. Yes, I have. We, well, right now, we're living in Hawaii, which is beautiful Kauai. it's a really beautiful island um and we live on a in a house that overlooks the beach there's a long hike down to the beach so i try to go down and back up again every day just to get that kind of aerobic exercise Uh, and also of course we get a lot of sun exposure especially when we're here Uh, so i really work at getting sun exposure we have a a convertible car so when we're driving we're getting sun (laughs) and um in terms of foods we eat uh so my husband's chinese so we eat a lot of uh, chinese food which is stir fried and we use peanut oil i actually think lard would be good also but we mostly use peanut oil for frying and then um and then we we, so we have a lot of green vegetables uh back home in boston we can get access to a lot of different uh interesting chinese vegetables green vegetables that are chinese you know um bok choy and and you know uh mustard greens mustard greens are really really healthy um and of course broccoli and cauliflower we eat a lot of that and i eat a lot of onion and garlic and then uh in terms of uh, meats you know chicken and uh, i love lamb uh, I think lamb is a better choice because I think uh, it's likely grown uh, better than cows. And I would think that beef would be fine. And we have a luckily here we have grass fed beef. There's a, uh, a cattle, a small cattle farm right out right near where we live. And they kill one cow every week. And we always go down and buy beef. So it's very high quality grass fed beef. And then, of course, we get uh, shrimp, seafood, oysters, um, fish. Uh, you have to be very careful with fish uh, because farm grown is probably, you know, full of toxins and even the wild caught fish now you've got issues with mercury so we're a little uncertain about that you know fish has a lot of really good nutrients it's a really good source of taurine but with everything you have to worry about where it's been and how it's been you know grown it's we we really fuss over food because um we care but it's hard in today's environment and of course you have to spend a lot more on food than people would spend who would just buy all the processed foods we don't buy any you know cereal or we eat almost no rice or, or corn we won't eat unless it's organic which is hard to find 
Um, soy, because of Chinese, my husband likes to use soy, but we always buy non-GMO soy. So we really pay attention to the quality of the food that we buy. And eggs, we have eggs for breakfast. Cheese, I really like cheese. Um, sharp cheddar cheese and blue cheese, I think those are really healthy. Um, milk, I don't, uh, you know, really drink milk. Um, I worry about where the, what the cow's health, you know. Um, but I do, um, I like yogurt, and uh, which I think is because it's been fer- fermented, you get a lot of extra value in the fermentation process. And you get the live, if you get the live culture, that's good too, because it'll help to fix your gut bacteria. Uh, blue cheese I mentioned. Let's see. Oh, soups. I should mention soups. And my husband is a really good cook and he makes a soup every, uh, in the wintertime especially, every week. He makes a, a big pot of soup on the weekend and we have it all week long with dinner. And you start with bones, pork bones, and you boil those in the water. So you're getting the nutrients out of the bones, the bone marrow and that sort of thing is very important for the um, electrolytes. So the electrolytes are going to help to keep your blood healthy. And then you can put um, chicken in the soup and curry. You know, you can make a curry and cook Coconut, uh, coconut curry chicken broth, which is really good. Coconut, I think, is fantastic. It's really a healthy, uh, veg, uh, what is it, a fruit? <laughs> nut? A nut. A healthy yeah. nut. Yes. Yeah, coconut's fantastic. Coconut oil and the coconut flesh and the coconut water are all really good for you. Okay. It doesn't sound like you eat a lot of fruits. carbs. Are, are there any amount fruits. of carbs? Yeah, my husband really loves fruit, and I'm more okay. cautious of it. Um, but we have a lot of really great fruits here. We go to the farmer's market and, and to buy uh, fruits and vegetables, which is really great here in Kauai. They have the farmer's market. And uh, so here we have a lot of, you know, pineapple and um, and uh, bananas and uh, <laughs> back home. I like berries, blueberries, you know, mm-hmm. uh, okay. berries, are good. berries are good. You know, Stephanie, it's been great hearing from you and hearing about all your different ideas. Um, and, I, and I think the listeners will really enjoy this show. So thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It was great. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.